Hi, uh, this is Danielle Karopkin speaking to you from Thornhill, Ontario. I want to apologize uh, for the change in time for those who are in Israel today. Uh, because you changed your clock backs one week before we did in North America. Um, Shior for you today is one hour earlier, whereas for us it's the regular time. Um, so um, some of you may uh, have anticipated it for an hour later, but you'll watch the recording. Again, apologies. Um, we are studying Morena Vuchim, Maimonides' Guide for the Perplexed. By um, uh, We've been doing this for a while. Uh, we are on the webyeshiva.org platform. And any handouts that we give out today, you're welcome to reference on the webyeshiva.org website on the, in the course description for this course, or you can go to the web, the, the uh, Facebook group, uh, Shi'ur in Morena Vuchim, and you can download it from there. We are in section three, chapter 19. We are continuing our discussion of divine providence, of God's interaction with our universe. Um, and after a long, uh, a lengthier discussion in uh, chapter 17 and 18 about the concept of divine providence, the Rambam is returning to something that he had already begun discussing in chapter 16, which is a very related topic, and that is that of divine knowledge. Obviously, God can only be providential upon the things that he knows about. And one would assume, as the Rambam does, that if God is all-powerful, he is omnipotent, then he is also omniscient. As he had stated in the beginning of chapter 16, as he does again in chapter 19, the association between knowledge and power is should seem to be self-evident, that if a God is all-powerful, then he should also be all-knowing, because any, as the Rambam says at the beginning of our chapter, any deficiency of knowledge would indicate a deficiency of God's ability, and that's something that doesn't seem to be feasible. However, what's curious, if you'll recall from when we learned this back in chapter 16, the Rambam did share with us that there are some philosophical opinions that God's knowledge is limited. And I'm going to share my screen with you now at this point. Um, and I would refer you back to uh, our comments when we studied um, chapter 16. Um, and that's why I write in the brackets at the in the introduction uh, in our handout, um, compare this chapter, chapter 16, where the Rambam had already discussed the topic of divine omniscience and the philosophical challenges to it. And so our question is, why does he repeat this idea in this chapter? And that's something that is worth pondering as we go through this chapter and we we compare it to what was what the Rambam had just said three chapters ago. Professor Ivry, in his work, uh, in his breakdown of each chapter of Morena Vuchim, suggests that the Rambam wanted to emphasize the ideas that he already laid down in chapter 16, once again in chapters 19 and 20, for rhetorical effect. Um, I have a little bit of difficulty with that. I think that the Rambam would not just do it for rhetorical effect, just to sort of uh, uh, beat his uh, beat across his a point and sort of hammer it into us. Um, I think that um, that as a philosopher, the Rambam was very very precise in the way that he would get across his points, even though we can't always understand why he says everything that he does. And so I'm going to uh, that the reason why we uh, entitled the chapter for today 
questions about omniscience, about God's all-knowing ability from both philosophers and the ancient and the ancients. And I believe that there's just one sentence it towards the end of this chapter where the Rambam is going to try to impart to us why he devotes an entire chapter on the very same subject that he discussed just three chapters ago. But let's first look at the breakdown of how the Rambam presents us this chapter. It is axiomatic that all good things must exist in God and that there may be no deficiencies within God. We've established this in our discussions in the first section where the really the main topic was a discussion of God and uh, in discovering sort of as much as man is capable of understanding God through the verses of Tanakh. Any lack of knowledge is a deficiency and therefore by definition God lacks knowledge of nothing. And however, this did not stop philosophers from suggesting that God indeed does lack knowledge of certain things. Now, why were they impelled to do this? So the Rambam wants to point out that the greatest factor that impelled them to this idea was their taking note of the apparent randomness and lack of order in the human condition. Specifically, you know, the the whole theological discussion of theodicy, which is a philosophical philosophical dilemma as well. Why do bad things happen to good people or why do the wicked prosper? Um, and when we notice sort of the seeming chaos or randomness in the way that things happen in people's lives, it sort of leads us to conclude that if a completely good God was in charge of this world and orchestrating the world properly, then it couldn't be that such certain th things that seem to be ha happening chaotically would actually occur in the way that they do. So that's the thing that causes people to think that God does is not even aware of what's going on, and that's why he doesn't address those things. So it should be countered, however, that most disorder and chaos that occurs in people's lives is due not to natural conditions, but rather to other free-willed individuals. The Rambam has made this statement before, but he's sort of emphasizing it again at the outset of this chapter. We do have this conflict between free will and divine providence. The Rambam discusses this in a number of places in his writings, but here the Rambam is so emphatic that in order for the world's purpose to be realized, in order for man's purpose to be realized, man has to have free reign and, and, and must be permitted to, to, to do that which he chooses to do, whether good and evil. And because of that, God, sort of, so to speak, removes himself from interfering with the goings-on of humanity to enable man to exercise free will. And as such, the Rambam says, that when you think about it in that context, you'll notice that most of the chaotic things or the seemingly random things that occur in, in the human condition are due to other free-willed beings. Either because if I encounter bad things in my life, God forbid, either I've made poor choices or people around me have made bad choices that adversely affect me even though I've chosen wisely. And the Rambam basically resigns himself to the fact that you cannot challenge God's knowledge on that basis, because God may be fully aware of what's going on, but simply refuses to interfere 
it, uh, in the uh, in the affairs of free-willed individuals, so as not to deny people free will. Now, this, of course, is it could be very troubling because uh, does that not imply that God sort of gives priority to the acts of evil men over trying to mete out justice in this world? So let's see. This is not going to be the chapter where the Rambam reconciles justice with the free will of evil men. But let's just keep that in the back of our minds and let's try, we're going to see a little bit of a passage in Tanakh in just a moment. Now, the Rambam continues and he says, this question of apparent disorder in man's life was already mentioned by the prophets in their asking the question of why wicked people prosper. And I do feel as we get closer and, and more in depth into this chapter, what we're going to discover is that the Rambam's main objective in this chapter is to sort of uh, indicate to us that this is not just a philosophical question. This is a question that was asked by the ancients um, as to why we see things happening seemingly on a random basis in this world. And therefore, when you, um, when you consider the questions that emanate from the philosophical community, don't think that those questions were not asked before. Ever since human beings have had the ability to communicate and express their ideas going back to the ancient world in biblical times, man was asking this question. Why is it if we believe in a God who is all good and all knowing and all powerful, why doesn't God interfere? Why does he allow bad things to happen? And why does he allow the wicked to prosper? So the pious man who tries to be good is depicted in Tanakh as questioning why God allows harm to befall him at the hands of the wicked, despite the good choices and good deeds he performs. And even pious people sometimes conclude that his acts of goodness gain him nothing. And it, it, even though the Rambam doesn't say that here, but when you think about it, that's really the whole book of Job, right? Job is a good man. Why is it then that these bad things are happening? We're going to see the Rambam is going to dedicate a whole section of this uh, of the third section to the book of Job for this very reason. The prophet responds to such questioning by stating that human vision is limited and that a person should look towards the long-term outcome of God's will. The human being does not see the whole picture. You have to have a more panoramic view. And because human beings live very short lives, we don't really get to see the full picture. And sometimes what seems to be an injustice or happening by random is really God orchestrating a very elaborate process that may take several generations in order to unfold. And therefore the Rambam uh, quotes uh, Psalm 73 as depicting this back and forth questioning. Therefore people say, is it, is it possible that God knows what's going on when these bad things happen or the wicked are prospering? Is there truly knowledge to the, to the Most High? He says, look at all of the wicked people and people who are living with contentment um, uh, that are evil and achieve all of this great uh, power. Ach rik zikiti levavi ve'erchatz b'nikayon kapai and however, I have purified my heart. And despite my piety, despite my righteousness, I am afflicted all the time. 
Um, and va'achashvala da'at zot amal hu be'enai. And every time I try to figure it out, why it is that the wicked prosper and I nebuch am suffering, I, 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 I sort of, I end up in a conundrum. I don't really understand. Ad avo el kel avina la'acharitam. And then sort of the impactful verse, verse 17 in Psalm 73, is that I won't be able to figure this out until I come to the temple of God and I will understand the end game or I will understand things in the end. And this is really quite interesting because there are different ways the commentaries understand this. The Rambam just generically states that, you know, what, what the prophet is trying to say in this psalm is that you have to wait things out. You have to be patient and see how things will play themselves out. And if you would, if you had that sort of more panoramic long-term vision, you'd be able to make sense of a world that is that seems to be chaotic. But Rashi explains quite interestingly that the reason why the uh, the righteous man is depicted as coming to the temple of God is that it's referring to a specific event until I come to that temple of God that is in Jerusalem. I see what occurred to the wicked king Sancheirev of Assyria who had his downfall there and therefore and then realize, in other words, letting history play itself out. And even though temporarily wicked people are able to have the upper hand, like we're, unfortunately we're seeing in today's world, um, uh, in, in Israel today, that innocent people have been, uh, have, been, have been killed, have been murdered, have been exploited, have been taken captive. The horrible things that have happened to our people and yet, you can say to yourself, how can God allow this? How can, where is the righteousness, God? How can you allow these evil people to have the upper hand? And I guess the answer uh, is, have patience. As Rashi says, any good, any victory that you may see them having is a pyrrhic victory, is a temporary, slippery victory that will slip from their hands very soon. And that God will sort of allow them to slide along, to think that they are the victors, but then eventually they will be lost uh, utterly and entirely in the future. Um, and and then Rashi says, uh, sorry, that's so that's the way Rashi understands, is that it's very seemingly like the like the Rambam. Um, other commentaries say that when I come to the kingdom of God, uh, like the Malbim explains, I will come to consult with the Kohanim, the holy men, and they will try to put things in perspective for me. So sometimes we don't really understand things fully until we consult with people who have more of a spiritual worldview, and they're able to try to make sense of a world that seems to be chaotic. But then we look at the Radak. Uh, and he says, Ad tarti I really tried very hard to make sense of what's going on. I, I really pondered this in my heart, but I was unsuccessful. Until I came in my thoughts, I sort of entered in my thoughts to the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is not a specific place, says the Radak. He says it's a reference to uh, the kingdom that exists in heaven, where the angels reside. 
because that's where people get their final and ultimate recompense. This world is not the place to seek justice and proper recompense for good and evil, but you have to go to the kingdom of the Lord. The kingdom of the Lord refers to Shamayim, what happens after we die. Kituv ha'olam hazeh eno omed, because nothing, uh, n- none of the good of this world is permanent. Aval biacharit v'olam hanefashot bo yibachanu hatovim v'haraim. But at the end of days, in the spiritual realm, the soul realm where people go after they die, that is where good and evil will truly be recompensed, and that is where truly good and evil will be manifest. And that's why King David finishes that verse by saying, I will be able to understand at their end. In other words, we don't see, we just see the tip of the iceberg in this world. So also uh, consistent perhaps with the Rambam, although the, um, the Rambam may not be referring to the afterlife in the same way that the Radak is, but that's certainly the common theme. The Rambam writes that the same approach was taken by the prophet Malachi. It says, Hashem, that your words are, are a burdensome to me. Uh, why? Because you say, Amartem Shavavod Elokim. Because you say, what of what benefit is it to serve God? What's the point of observing his observance? Because ultimately we end up suffering. All of the sinners we see in front of us are becoming prosperous. People test God all the time by acting, acting in an evil way, and they escape. They get away with it. Um, and God sort of, people who fear God start talking in this way, um, and even though people try to make sense of it, um, the, um, the, 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 the prophet ultimately says in verse 18, V'shavtem ur'item bein sadik l'rasha, bein oved elokim that in the end, you'll be able to turn back and in retrospect and see all of the things that befall the righteous and the wicked between a person who serves God and someone who doesn't. And so therefore, even though it's going to take a long time and you're going to have to turn around in retrospect and look back over years and perhaps generations of events, eventually you'll understand. And then the Rambam again quotes from Tehillim saying that this is from King David. And Rambam is going to give special treatment to this next psalm that he analyzes, which is Psalm 94. Uh, If we come in the middle of the psalm, it's David complaining that, God, I see that your nation is suffering. They are oppressed. That the widow and the convert are being murdered, and they murder orphans. They murder innocent children and women. And they say that God does not see. And they say that the Lord of Jacob does not even understand what's going on. This is, again, this is the accusation of the philosophers that is put, that the mouths of the prophets themselves already enunciated centuries before the philosophers asked this question. So understand, you boorish people of the nation, and you fools, when will you finally understand? If God is the one who implants the ear, will he not hear? If God is the one who forms the eye, will he not see? 
Of course, God knows what's going on. And compensation will be given to those who perform these horrendous acts of evil. So the Rambam says this too thematically is very consistent with what philosophers ask. And basically it's due, the, the, only, the, the conclusions that you arrive at that God does not know are completely fallacious. And it's only because you don't really see the long-term justice that will uh, ensue. And then the Rambam says, I will first explain to you how people misunderstand David's argument. And he relates that a number of years ago, a group of distinguished Jewish physicians expressed wonder at this teaching of David. Being people who studied anatomy, they said to themselves that according to this argument, that if God is the one who forms the ear, that he must be able to hear. And if God is the former of the eye, then he must be able to see. He said, according to that reasoning, if God created an organ, he must possess the ability of that organ, should it not follow that God who creates the mouth eats, and God who creates the lungs can use his voice to scream, because that's you need air in order to scream. So therefore, does this not imply that God eats food and that God uses air the same way that man does if God created us with lungs? So he says that's sort of a, um, a, a, an anthropomorphic depiction of God, which the Rambam, as we know, completely rejects. Uh, there is no any, uh, there is no, uh, no type of uh, corporeality that can be associated with God. So what does the psalmist really mean? So the Rambam says they totally misunderstood what David was saying, and I will now explain it properly. This is, and the Rambam makes an analogy to a maker of instruments. It is clear that if a person is making an instrument, he could not conceptualize how this tool would, if, if, if he could not conceptualize how a tool is going to be used, he couldn't possibly make it. For example, a blacksmith would never manufacture needles unless he knew that someone's going to use the needle to sew. He would need to know how a needle of the unique shape it possesses can aid in that effort. The same applies to other instruments. If you're going to be making a hammer, then you, you obviously have to know that people need nails and they need to use a hammer in order to be able to put pieces of wood together with nails. So that's the point that David was saying. He was countering an argument that we saw back in chapter 16 as one of the philosophical arguments as to why philosophers believe that God was not all-knowing. You argue that since God possesses no bodily organs or senses, he cannot possibly be aware of those things that are only sensed by physical senses, since he conceives of things by intellect alone. And therefore, things that are happening on a physical plane, God is completely removed above the physical plane, transcends above the physical plane. So how can he possibly be aware of the things that are only perceptible by sensory perception? This is the reason why his knowledge is limited. And this is something that the Rambam had mentioned back in chapter 16, and we have the reference there in, in the notes. So David is directly responding to that idea. If God had no appreciation for the sense of sight, how could he create the instrument of sight without being aware of its function? The fact that God creates people with eyes means that God understands what sight is. Obviously, God has no eyes, but he needs to at least associate the sensation of seeing. He has to have some knowledge of that in order to be able to create man with eyes. Surely the complex soft and hard membranes and fluids that fill the eye 
could not have been created by guesswork or chance. This being the case, and being that it is already given by philosophers that nature brings about the faculty of sight through the formation of the eye, and being that nature possesses no independent intellect, and this is something that even Aristotle had agreed to, that everything happens through intelligent design, through a prime mover, we must conclude either that there is divine intellect that automatically overflows into all of creation, structuring through intelligent design all of the complexity of the bodily organs as the philosophers state, or B, that God deliberately acts with will who impressed all the faculties in, in question into all the things in which a natural faculty exists. In other words, the Rambam is basically saying, whether you're a philosopher or a follower of the Torah, a philosopher holds that God does not have will, but rather by God's very nature overflows his intellect into everything that exists. And that, that uh, perfect divine intellect causes everything to be organized in the way that it is and that there's tremendous order in this world. Um, the Torah Jew, person who is a, a, a theologian and believes in the way that the Torah depicts God, understands that God deliberately does this with will. He is a volitional being. And we talked extensively about this when we were studying the first section of the Rambam, that this is one of the divides between philosophy and the Torah, even for the Rambam, whether God acts volitionally, which is what we believe in the Torah, or that God acts by his nature in order to imbue a sense of order into all that exists. Either way, you must conclude that there is a sense of structure and order that is deliberate in this world. Um, and therefore, that's what King David was responding to, that if God could design the complexity of the organ of the eye, then he must be aware of what's going on in our world and that everything is by design. It is therefore clear that God must be aware of human sight and can himself see the same things that human beings can see. This is why David said about them, these people who question God's ability to know, that they are brutish, bo'arim, and fools, kisilim. Furthermore, David says about man in general that human comprehension is limited, and therefore man should not make theological conclusions about God based on his limited understanding. And that's why the Rambam brings the ensuing verses in that same psalm, Psalm 94, hayoser goyim halo yochiach, that God afflicts nations, don't you think he's going to rebuke you over your mistaken knowledge? God imbues man with knowledge. And God understands man's limited knowledge and knows that it is vanity. It is nothingness. Man's knowledge is nothing compared to divine knowledge. And therefore, just because you see, see things in a certain way, does, that you, you, you think that things are chaotic and happening randomly and that there's no justice in this world, that is not true. Your knowledge is limited. Now the Rambam is getting now to the conclusion of the chapter and he says, the whole of my aim in this chapter was to make it clear that this speculation is very ancient. And I believe that's really the, the thrust or why the Rambam is repeating this chapter. He wants to make it clear that the philosophers, despite their great wisdom and despite the Rambam's great reverence for these philosophers, were you, they should not be taken as gospel simply because they ask these profound questions based on logic, based on philosophical 
uh, conclusions um, and therefore uh, conclude like the philosophers do, that God's knowledge is limited. Understand, says the Rambam, these questions go back to a very ancient source ever since man was aware and was was able to uh, be, have a consciousness and and under an understanding of the human condition had a self-awareness these questions have been asked and that people came to this conclusion not so much because of philosophical argumentation but rather because they observe the chaos and injustice of people's lives and it's therefore not based on any kind of philosophical wisdom to ask this question, nor is it based on any philosophical wisdom to come up with the correct answer. Scripture states that the Jewish people too embrace this mistaken belief. As it says in the second book of Kings, um, that the Jewish people uh, imputed uh, to God um, things that are not true about God. And they built for them um, idolatrous um, bamot, uh, monuments in all of their cities. Um, and as the Radak explains, Bedivrei Razal, according to the Medrash, Ma Omru, what did, what, what did the Jewish people say about God? Amru ha'amud hazeh eino ro'eh ve'eino shomea. They said, and the Ramam quotes this in the text of our chapter, that this pillar cannot see and cannot hear. V'zehu lashon vayach basically saying that just like a pillar cannot see or cannot hear, so to God is it's like talking to a wall, right? That they deny that God has complete omniscience. And this is what Ezekiel the prophet also said. God does not see us. God has forsaken the land. And the prophet Isaiah says, Who sees us and who knows us? And therefore the Radak explains that the word is like to cover something up. In other words, they cover up the, the divine knowledge and say that there's no one out there listening, there's no one out there seeing, God is not aware of what's going on. This was based on their observation that things don't turn out in people's lives as they would expect. And Sephania, the prophet, rejected this outlook by saying, the hayaba etahi achapes et Yerushalayim bane wrote, it shall be at that time that I will search all of Jerusalem with candlelight. Ufokarati al ha'anashim ha'kofi'im al shimrehem, and I will bring justice upon all those people who, um, who, using poetic language, who are corrupting uh, the truth, who say in their hearts that God neither does good nor does evil. Uh, and so basically, after bringing all of these verses from Scripture, the Rambam sort of has proven his point that this is not just a philosophical discussion, this is a discussion that appears throughout Tanakh, and therefore we, which is more of a reason not to give credence to the philosophical arguments. The Rambam just finishes by saying we will continue this discussion of divine knowledge, but first I will present ideas on this topic on which there is general consensus and that no one with intellect can contest. And we will continue this discussion of God's omniscience over the next few chapters. Thanks for joining us for today. Um, and again, apologies to those who are coming on an hour later. 
Hopefully you'll be able to see the recording. Have a great day, everybody.